Volume three, chapter two of John Marchmont's Legacy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. John Marchmont's Legacy by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter two, the deserted chambers. Edward Arundel kept his word. He waited for a week and upwards, but Paul Marchmont made no sign. And after having given him three days' grace over and above the promised time, the young man abandoned Kemberling Retreat forever, as he thought, and went away from Lincolnshire. He had waited, hoping that Paul Marchmont would try to retaliate, and that some desperate struggle, physical or legal, he scarcely cared which, would occur between them. He would have courted any hazard which might have given him some chance of revenge, but nothing happened. He sent out Mr. Morrison to beat up information about the master of Marchmont Towers, and the factotum came back with the intelligence that Mr. Marchmont was ill, and would see no one, leastways excepting his mother and Mr. George Weston. Edward Arundel shrugged his shoulders when he heard these tidings. "'What a contemptible cur the man is,' he thought. "'There was a time when I could have suspected him of any foul play against my lost girl. I know him better now, and know that he is not even capable of a great crime. He was only strong enough to stab his victim in the dark, with lying paragraphs in newspapers and dastardly hints and innuendos. It would have been only perhaps an act of ordinary politeness had Edward Arundel paid a farewell visit to his friends at the Grange.' but he did not go near the hospitable old house. He contented himself with writing a cordial letter to Major Lawford, thanking him for his hospitality and kindness, and referring, vaguely enough, to the hope of a future meeting. He dispatched this letter by Mr. Morrison, who was in very high spirits at the prospect of leaving Kemberling, and who went about his work with almost boyish activity in the exuberance of his delight. The valet worked so briskly as to complete all necessary arrangements in a couple of days, and on the twenty-ninth of October, late in the afternoon, all was ready, and he had nothing to do but to superintend the departure of the two horses from the Kemberling railway station, under the guardianship of the lad who had served as Edward's groom. Throughout that last day Mr. Arundel wandered here and there about the house and garden that so soon were to be deserted. He was dreadfully at a loss what to do with himself, and, alas, it was not to-day only that he felt the burden of his hopeless idleness. He felt it always, a horrible load, not to be cast away from him. His life had been broken off short, as it were, by the catastrophe which had left him a widower before his honeymoon was well over. The story of his existence was abruptly broken asunder. All the better part of his life was taken away from him, and he did not know what to do with the blank and useless remnant. The ravelled threads of a once harmonious web, suddenly wrenched in twain, presented a mass of inextricable confusion, and the young man's brain grew dizzy when he tried to draw them out, or to consider them separately." His life was most miserable, most hopeless, by reason of its emptiness. He had no duty to perform, no task to achieve. That nature must be utterly selfish, entirely given over to sybarite rest and self-indulgence, which does not feel a lack of something wanting these, a duty or a purpose. Better to be Sisyphus toiling up the mountainside than Sisyphus with the stone taken away from him, and no hope of ever reaching the top. I heard a man once, a bill-sticker, and not by any means a sentimental or philosophical person, declare that he had never known real prosperity until he had thirteen orphan grandchildren to support, and surely there was a universal moral in that bill-sticker's confession. He had been a drunkard before, perhaps, he didn't say anything about that, and a reprobate, it may be, but those thirteen small mouths clamouring for food made him sober and earnest, brave and true. He had a duty to do, and was happy in its performance. He was wanted in the world, and he was somebody. From Napoleon III holding the destinies of civilized Europe in his hands, and debating whether he shall recreate Poland or build a new boulevard, 
to paterfamilias in a government office working for the little ones at home and from paterfamilias to the crossing-sweeper who craves his diurnal halfpenny from busy citizens tramping to their daily toil every man has his separate labour and his different responsibility for ever and for ever the busy wheel of life turns round but duty and ambition are the motive powers that keep it going edward arundel felt the barrenness of his life now that he had taken the only revenge which was possible for him upon the man who had persecuted his wife that had been a rapturous but brief enjoyment it was over he could do no more to the man since there was no lower depth of humiliation in these later days when pillories and whipping-posts and stocks are exploded from our market-places to which a degraded creature could descend no there was no more to be done it was useless to stop in lincolnshire the sad suggestion of the little slipper found by the waterside was but too true paul marchmont had not murdered his helpless cousin he had only tortured her to death he was quite safe from the law of the land which being of a positive and arbitrary nature takes no cognizance of indefinable offences this most infamous man was safe and was free to enjoy his ill-gotten grandeur if he could take much pleasure in it after the scene upon the stone terrace the only joy that had been left for edward arundel after his retirement from the east india company's service was this fierce delight of vengeance he had drained the intoxicating cup to the dregs and had been drunken at first in the sense of his triumph but he was sober now and he paced up and down the neglected garden beneath a chill october sky crunching the fallen leaves under his feet with his arms folded and his head bent thinking of the barren future it was all bare a blank stretch of desert land with no city in the distance no purple domes or airy minarets on the horizon it was in the very nature of this young man to be a soldier and he was nothing if not a soldier he could never remember having had any other aspiration than that eager thirst for military glory before he knew the meaning of the word war in his very infancy the sound of a trumpet or the sight of a wavering banner a glittering weapon a sentinel scarlet coat had moved him to a kind of rapture the unvarnished schoolroom records of greek and roman warfare had been as delightful to him as the finest passages of a macaulay or a froude a thiers or lamartine he was a soldier by the inspiration of heaven as all great soldiers are he had never known any other ambition or dreamed any other dream other lads had talked of the bar and the senate and their glories bah how cold and tame they seemed what was the glory of a parliamentary triumph in which words were the only weapons wielded by the combatants compared with a hand-to-hand struggle ankle-deep in the bloody mire of a crowded trench or a cavalry charge before which a phalanx of fierce afghans fled like frightened sheep upon a moor edward arundel was a soldier like the duke of wellington or sir colin campbell one writes the old romantic name involuntarily because one loves it best or othello the moor's first lamentation when he believes that desdemona is false and his life is broken is that sublime farewell to all the glories of the battlefield it was almost the same with edward arundel the loss of his wife and of his captaincy were blent and mingled in his mind and he could only bewail the one great loss which left life most desolate he had never felt the full extent of his desolation until now for heretofore he had been buoyed up by the hope of vengeance upon paul marchmont and now that his solitary hope had been realized to the fullest possible extent there was nothing left nothing but to revoke the sacrifice he had made and to regain his place in the indian army at any cost he tried not to think of the possibility of this it seemed to him almost an infidelity towards his dead wife to dream of winning honours and distinction now that she who would have been so proud of any triumph won by him was forever lost so under the grey october sky he paced up and down upon the grass-grown pathways amidst the weeds and briars the brambles and broken branches that crackled as he trod upon them 
and late in the afternoon, when the day, which had been sunless and cold, was melting into dusky twilight, he opened the low wooden gateway and went out into the road. An impulse which he could not resist took him towards the river-bank and the wood behind Marchmont Towers. Once more, for the last time in his life, perhaps, he went down to that lonely shore. He went to look at the bleak, unlovely place which had been the scene of his betrothal. It was not that he had any thought of meeting Olivia Marchmont. He had dismissed her from his mind ever since his last visit to the lonely boat-house. Whatever the mystery of her life might be, her secret lay at the bottom of a black depth which the impetuous soldier did not care to fathom. He did not want to discover that hideous secret. Tarnished honour, shame, falsehood, disgrace lurked in the obscurity in which John Marchmont's widow had chosen to enshroud her life. Let them rest. It was not for him to drag away the curtain that sheltered his kinswoman from the world. He had no thought, therefore, of prying into any secrets that might be hidden in the pavilion by the water. The fascination that lured him to the spot was the memory of the past. He could not go to Mary's grave, in as reverent a spirit as he would have gone thither, to the scene of his betrothal, to pay his farewell visit to the spot which had been forever hallowed by the confession of her innocent love. It was nearly dark when he got to the riverside. He went by a path which quite avoided the grounds about Marchmont Towers, a narrow footpath which served as a towing-path sometimes, when some black barge crawled by on its way out to the open sea. To-night the river was hidden by a mist, a white fog, that obscured land and water, and it was only by the sound of the horse's hoofs that Edward Arundel had warning to step aside as a string of them went by, dragging a chain that grated on the pebbles by the riverside. "'Why should they say my darling committed suicide?' thought Edward Arundel, as he groped his way along the narrow pathway. "'It was on such an evening as this that she ran away from home. What more likely than that she lost the track and wandered into the river? Oh, my own poor lost one! God grant it was so! God grant it was by his will, and not your own desperate act, that you were lost to me!' Sorrowful as the thought of his wife's death was to him, it soothed him to believe that death might have been accidental. There was all the difference betwixt sorrow and despair in the alternative. Wandering ignorantly and helplessly through this autumnal fog, Edward Arundel found himself at the boat-house before he was aware of its vicinity. There was a light gleaming from the broad north window of the painting-room, and a slanting line of light streamed out of the half-open door. In this lighted doorway Edward saw the figure of a girl, an unkempt, red-headed girl, with a flat, freckled face, a girl who wore a lavender-cotton pinafore and hobnailed boots, with a good deal of brass about the leathern fronts, and a redundancy of rusty leathern bootlace twisted round the ankles. The young man remembered having seen this girl once in the village of Kemberling. She had been in Mrs. Weston's service as a drudge, and was supposed to have received her education in the Swampington Union. This young lady was supporting herself against the half-open door, with her arms akimbo and her hands planted upon her hips, in humble imitation of the matrons whom she had been wont to see lounging at their cottage doors in the high street of Kemberling, when the labours of the day were done. Edward Arundel started at the sudden apparition of this damsel. "'Who are you, girl?' he asked, "'and what brings you to this place?' He trembled as he spoke. A sudden agitation had seized upon him, which he had no power to account for. It seemed as if Providence had brought him to this spot to-night, and had placed this ignorant country-girl in his way for some special purpose. Whatever the secrets of this place might be, he was to know them, it appeared, since he had been led here, not by the promptings of a curiosity, but only by a reverent love for a scene that was associated with his dead wife. "'Who are you, girl?' he asked again. "'I be Betsy Murrell, sir,' the damsel answered. "'Some of them calls me Wookusbet, and I be come here to clean up a bit.' "'To clean up what?' "'The paintin'-room. There's a deal of muck about, and I'm to fiddle up, and make all tidy again to squire gets well.' 
Are you all alone here? All alone? Well, yes, sir. Have you been here long? The girl looked at Mr. Arundel with a cunning leer, which was one of her wookus acquirements. I've been here off and on ever since the squire came, she said. There's a deal of cleaning down here. Edward Arundel looked at her sternly, but there was nothing to be gathered from her stolid countenance after its agreeable leer had melted away. The young man might have scrutinized the figurehead of the black barge creeping slowly past upon the hidden river, with quite as much chance of getting any information out of its play of feature. He walked past the girl into Paul Marchmont's painting-room. Miss Betsy Murrell made no attempt to hinder him. She had spoken the truth as to the cleaning of the place, for the room smelt of soap-suds, and a pail and scrubbing-brush stood in the middle of the floor. The young man looked at the door behind which he had heard the crying of the child. It was ajar, and the stone steps leading up to it were wet, bearing testimony to Betsy Murrell's industry. Edward Arundel took the flaming tallow-candle from the table in the painting-room, and went up the steps into the pavilion. The girl followed, but she did not try to restrain him, or to interfere with him. She followed him with her mouth open, staring at him after the manner of her kind, and she looked the very image of rustic stupidity. With the flaring candle shaded by his left hand, Edward Arundel examined the two chambers in the pavilion. There was very little to reward his scrutiny. The two small rooms were bare and cheerless. The repairs that had been executed had only gone so far as to make them tolerably inhabitable, and secure from wind and weather. The furniture was the same that Edward remembered having seen on his last visit to the towers, for Mary had been fond of sitting in one of the little rooms, looking out at the slow river and the trembling rushes on the shore. There was no trace of recent occupation in the empty rooms, no ashes in the grates. The girl grinned maliciously as Mr. Arundel raised the light above his head, and looked about him. He walked in and out of the two rooms. He stared at the obsolete chairs, the rickety tables, the dilapidated damask curtains, flapping every now and then in the wind that rushed in through the crannies of the doors and windows. He looked here and there, like a man bewildered, much to the amusement of Miss Betsy Murrell, who, with her arms crossed and her elbows in the palms of her moist hands, followed him backwards and forwards between the two small chambers. "'There was someone living here a week ago,' he said, "'someone who had the care of a—' He stopped suddenly. If he had guessed rightly at the dark secret, it was better that it should remain forever hidden. This girl was perhaps more ignorant than himself. It was not for him to enlighten her. "'Do you know if anybody has lived here lately?' he asked. Betty Murrell shook her head. "'Nobody's lived here. Not that I knows of,' she replied. "'Not to take their victuals in such light. Missus brings her work down sometimes, and sits in one of these here rooms, while Mr. Paul does his picture-painting. That's all I knows of.' Edward went back to the painting-room and set down his candle. The mystery of those empty chambers was no business of his. He began to think that his cousin Olivia was mad, and that her outbursts of terror and agitation had been only the raving of a madwoman after all. There had been a great deal in her manner during the last year that had seemed like insanity. The presence of the child might have been purely accidental, and his cousin's wild vehemence only a paroxysm of insanity. He sighed as he left Miss Murrell to her scouring. The world seemed out of joint, and he, whose energetic nature fitted him for the straightening of crooked things, had no knowledge of the means by which it might be set right. "'Good-bye, lonely place,' he said. "'Good-bye to the spot where my young wife first told me of her love.' He walked back to the cottage, where the bustle of packing and preparation was all over, and where Mr. Morrison was entertaining a select party of friends in the kitchen. Early the next morning Mr. Arundel and his servant left Lincolnshire. The key of Kemberling Retreat was given up to the landlord and a wooden board, flapping above the dilapidated trellis-work of the porch, gave notice that the habitation was to be let. End of chapter 2, volume 3